Turn with me, please, or listen on as I read Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And hear the word of God. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can in, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years, and I will come near for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the message of the prophet Malachi and the way in which he sums up the message of the old covenant and makes room before John for the coming of a new covenant. And we ask you that as we now listen to a sermon on the subject, that you might give us the same hope and the same burden of this prophet. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember how chapter 2 closed, the very last line, where is the God of justice? which these sinful husbands were asking, sinfully, that is the question which the prophet or the Lord through the prophet now answers. They say, where is the God of justice? And he says, I am coming and sooner than you think. And my coming will surprise you and it will alarm you. I am coming, he says, to reprove the wayward sinner and even uh, in many cases to reject uh, the wayward sinners and to cut out the sinful branches. But also, he says, to reclaim the sons of Levi, which is uh, a way of saying the true worshipers, the true sons of God, the true Israel. Matthew Henry observes how the Old Covenant, in effect, closes with this question. It's an interesting way to, to sum up that the viewpoint of Israel at the end of the Old Testament. Where is the God of judgment? They were asking that question. They were not asking at most and at any rate in a, in a spirit of expectation, but rather as a way to condemn God. But that the New Testament, Henry says, opens in answer to that question. Uh, just as the prophet Malachi had told them to expect the coming of the Lord and his messenger. This is an answer then, let us see, which looks forward to the old covenant, or the new covenant, excuse me. And, and I think I said this last time, uh, that we must always read the prophets and the whole of the Old Testament, and certainly Malachi as he comes at the, at the end of the line, with an eye to the new covenant. That is his message, that is his outlook. That is the prophetic viewpoint. That what is amiss in the old covenant would be set right in the new. And the first thing he speaks of is the coming of a forerunner who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The question that we might have is why a forerunner? 
There are various answers which might be given, all of which are more or less obvious. The first is to stir up the hearts of the godly who sought the Lord and who would delight at his coming. And this is something that Malachi speaks of. There were, there were some even in his day and there were equally some in Jesus' day who delighted when he came, who cherished the hope of the prophets. And so the forerunner came for their sake. The great day of gladness has come and is, and is upon you. John would take up this office, John the Baptist. Jesus tells us he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last pointer to Jesus and the greatest of that dispensation. Another reason for a forerunner, uh, something that Calvin points out, I think very helpfully, is he is a forerunner to prepare the way or to clear the way. The Jews had erected many hindrances to the coming of the Lord. Many hindrances in the hearts of the people. Many hindrances in the life of Israel. And the reason that John the Baptist came uh, in the spirit of Malachi and the prophets was to clear away those hindrances. It was to preach a message of repentance. Now that leads me on, uh, and already I'm answering the question of how it was precisely that John prepared the way. And there are two answers to this question. One, we read both of these in Matthew 1. One was by baptism, a sign of repentance and renewal. But it was especially through his preaching. Exactly uh, what you always find in the prophets. The messenger of the Lord. The mouthpiece of God. And in this obviously we see that the last two prophets of the Old Covenant, Malachi and John, assumed a similar office. Or, or we could even say the same office, except that John was the forerunner and Malachi wasn't. But both were messengers. And so too, we might say, uh, are, are all true preachers of the gospel. They are all messengers of the same message. They are called, like John, to make room for Christ in the hearts of sinners. To those who are ensnared in sin, the preaching points to the need for repentance and of the coming judgment to make men afraid. And to those who are looking for Christ and for salvation, the preaching is a means of announcing the coming of the Lord and the salvation he brings. But in either case, the office of the preacher is to point to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who is offered for the sins of the world. This is the office of all true preachers, which John occupied, and by which a way was made for the coming of Christ into this world and into the heart of sinners. And yet we notice, we aren't going to spend much time with John, but I might just say this one thing about John. There's this one difficulty about John, or at least this difficulty he had about Jesus. I know that sounds strange, but it's true. What we notice in the preaching of Malachi and in the preaching of John was the special emphasis upon the judgment that the Lord would bring and that would accompany his coming. And it was this fact that, uh, that accounted for the difficulty which John had concerning Jesus. For what John witnessed was not an exact fulfillment of what Malachi said or what John himself said, that, the, that Christ would come in judgment. 
And so perplexed was John about this that he asked while he was in prison, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? He said that at the end of his life. He wasn't growing in certainty. He actually was beginning to waver. He expected one to come and to sift Israel like wheat, as he says in Matthew chapter 3. And instead what he found was a meek and a lowly servant. And by his own admission, that is by Jesus' own admission, he came not to judge the world but to save it, John chapter 3. So how odd it must have seemed to John, and we can understand why, given this picture here in Malachi, the same thing that John was preaching, the coming of the Lord in judgment. But as Jesus indicates to John in answer to the question, or at least the messengers of John, Matthew chapter 11, there was more than enough Uh, of uh, the prophecies concerning the Messiah that were being fulfilled in the life of Jesus to satisfy the expectation that Jesus was indeed the coming Messiah. uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's Jesus message to John through his messengers, but he's summing up uh, a portion of the prophecies concerning him. You'll find those especially in Isaiah. But if you keep reading Matthew chapter 11, and if you are familiar with the preaching of Jesus, you will also find that there was more than enough judgment in his preaching. Against Israel in particular. In fact, if you keep reading this very same chapter and the episode ends between Jesus and his messengers, the next thing that we read is uh, the pronouncement of woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and, and, and on and on he goes. And so even then, it is clear enough in the preaching of Jesus, just on the heels of him saying, Do you see the salvation I bring? He preaches a message of judgment. This was not a concept that was far from his mind. But the real answer to John's dilemma, something that John couldn't see and that Malachi couldn't see, as they assumed the prophetic viewpoint, they looked into the future and basically saw everything at once. They lacked historical perspective. They saw the coming of the Messiah in judgment. But what they didn't know and what didn't become clear until Christ came and and filled out the picture of Revelation is that Christ had both come and was coming. That the coming of the Lord would occur not in one but in two events. And that the majority of the prophecies, not all, but the majority of the prophecies concerning his coming in judgment were reserved for his second coming. Now that is the explanation for his confusion. But in fairness to John and in fairness to the Old Testament prophets, that is not something they knew. Revelation is progressive. It is a continual unfolding until it ends with Christ and his apostles. But here was something new which they didn't know and which was the answer to their question, but which we do know. And so in many ways, our position, this is something I'm going to to emphasize throughout the sermon. in, In many ways, our position is no different than Israel in the days of Malachi. We are still in a position, even though the Lord has come. In in fulfillment of this prophecy, we are still looking for his coming in judgment. And and the disposition of the church is to be the same as it was in the days of Malachi, namely one of repentance and of expectation. Now, I'm 
I'm preaching the end of my sermon too soon, but that's where we'll end. And so the great interest of ours is the coming of the Lord. Not his forerunner, but the coming of the Lord. That's Malachi's emphasis in the second part of verse 1 on to the end of verse 6. His coming is tied to the coming forerunner. They are sent as a pair, you might say. Elijah comes and the Lord on his heels. He will come suddenly just after the forerunner comes. In other words, once the forerunner appears... You ought to look for the coming of the Lord. And the amazing thing is that Israel still missed it. And to this day, they still don't see it. He will be swift in his judgment against Israel, pronouncing judgment of woes. We see that in the Gospels. He is a witness against Israel. And the suddenness is especially, that is of his coming, is especially seen in answer to their question, where is the God of judgment? Oh, I am coming, says the Lord, and I have not forgotten my judgment, though it seems you have, we find him saying to Israel. And let us see that this coming one was, as the Old Testament prophets clearly indicate, although even in the days of John, the Jews were confused about this. They hadn't quite got it into their head that the coming Messiah was the Lord himself. Not merely another prophet or messenger, but he was that. But he was the Lord himself. The very one whom they sought and whom others complained against. Where is the God of judgment? Oh, I am coming, says the Lord. When my forerunner has come, you may expect my sudden appearance. And how wonderfully this is all confirmed in the Gospels. The coming of the forerunner and the coming of the Christ on his heels. The Lord himself. And yet it did not, we see in the Gospels, and it still doesn't satisfy the Jews that this prophecy has been fulfilled. Although as I read it, and I'm going to continue to unfold this, I cannot imagine how they could conceive of it being fulfilled. Because, well let me come to the next point, he will come to his temple. The Lord will come to his temple. But do you realize the significance of this as well? Not just that he would come on the heels of the forerunner, but that he would come to Jerusalem when there was a temple. The significance is not merely that the temple was a symbol of worship in the church in those days, although it is that. But also that the temple had to be standing in order for Malachi's prophecy to be fulfilled. There were certain historical conditions. But soon after the days of Jesus, there was no temple. It was destroyed. But do you know it was still standing for a little while longer at his appearance. And that he visited that temple several times in fulfillment of this prophecy. I am coming and I will appear at the temple. And here is yet another wonderful confirmation. That Jesus is indeed the predicted one who follows on the heels of the forerunner. And yet... A veil remains on the heart and the eyes of the Jews to this day. He is said to be the messenger of the covenant. Third. Or as some take it, the mediator of the covenant, which fits well with his office. Not merely another messenger or prophet like John, but one whose office it was to bring a new covenant, which indeed the prophet Jeremiah had predicted of the Messiah and which we find the writer to the Hebrews saying of Christ. And Christ saying of himself. I am the mediator of a new covenant. Something new. Something better. 
And who was this mediator and this messenger? Well, he was God and man in one person. He appeared as a man, as a messenger, a mediator, as a prophet. But this man was the Lord. Do you notice that even in the prophets, the mystery of the incarnation is on display? God appearing in the form of a man. And in this, his glory would appear to us, he says. And his appearance forth, uh, we see, was that which they sought and in which they delighted. Now, this is both said honestly and ironically by the prophet. It is true, honestly, there were still in Malachi's day and there were still in the days of Christ's appearance, those who looked for his coming, those who cherished the hope of it, those who were uh, seeking for him and delighted that he should come. Uh, We read about two such people in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. And to them, Malachi's preaching, like John's, caused their hearts to burn and to rejoice in hope of the coming glory. And how they rejoiced to see that day come when it did. Yes, there were a few in Israel who still cherished this hope, but there were but few. And so this is said ironically for the most part. Those of you who seek my coming, yes, they sought him, but only like this. This is primarily meant as a rebuke to those who say, where is the God of justice? He's responding to their sinful seeking, their mockery. And in seeking him, they were seeking judgment, but not their own, but that of others. They were looking for the God of judgment to judge Others, but not themselves. Amazing, if you think of it. The very people Malachi is preaching to were looking for the God of judgment to come. You would have thought, given their sin, that they would have been afraid of his coming and wanted to push it off as far as possible. How little they knew of themselves and the God of Israel. Would any of the prophets ever persuade them that God was against them? And why? Well, for the thing that they refused to see, and that was their own sin. And yet they still complained as though it was the sins of others that he ignored. How soon their folly would appear in the coming of the Lord and his messenger when Israel would be rejected. And so he says, fifth, the day would be terrible. A day of woe and calamity. The coming day of the Lord. The coming of the Lord would spell disaster for Israel. And here we can speak not of the second, but of the first coming of Christ. It was a calamitous event. For the false sons of Israel. It meant for her judgment and rejection. He would come, Malachi says, like one with fire in his hands to refine and to burn. Calvin says the power of the fire is twofold. For it burns and it purifies. Which helps us to see the two senses of of, uh, this refiner's fire. There are two sides. It burns and it purifies. For the wicked, well, Malachi says they will not be able to stand in the day of his judgment, which reminds you of Psalm 1. Israel after the flesh, when he comes, will be sifted like wheat, exactly like John predicted. And that is, in fact, what happens shortly after the days of Christ. Israel is rejected. The natural branches are broken off. And the unnatural branches, the Gentiles, are grafted. They're grafted in. 
A day which is unbearable for the wicked. When God appears as witness against them and rejects them. Who are they? Who are the sinners the prophet is speaking of? I will be a... Well, uh, uh, verse 5. I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners, and so on. And added to that, God says... I haven't changed. Verse 6. For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore. uh, Actually, I'll leave that last phrase uh, off for a moment. Simply note. I do not change, says the Lord. In other words, the very sins I've listed in verse 5, I've always opposed. Though they be found among those whom I call my sons. Look at these sins. Sorcery, adultery, liars, oppressors. Calvin rightly concludes, I think, that the whole of the Ten Commandments is summed up in this single verse. For here is included both tables of the law. You have false worship and you have sins against humanity. And these are precisely the sins that Malachi was condemning in his preaching and in his day. And what did those who were engaged in such sins think would happen when the Lord appeared? When the Lord answered the call, where is the God of judgment? And said, I have come. Would he commend them in their sin? Would he congratulate them? Would he excuse them? Or would his coming find them out and spell their ruin? As he says, appearing as a swift witness against them. And do we realize, as these people seem to have forgotten, that even though the Lord appears sometimes slow in his coming, he is equally able. And often able to appear in a way that is very sudden and surprising and alarming. Catching uh, the godless unprepared. So it will be, Jesus says, at the end of the age. Humanity will be engaged in all manner of sin. And yet, when he appears, they will act as though when he comes, it was too sudden and unexpected to be considered fair. And yet, we see that scripture is simply full of warnings to this effect. Telling the godless to look for his coming and to amend their ways, lest they be caught unprepared. As he appears suddenly as a witness against them, and then it will be too late. A message of judgment, a message of repentance for sinners. Do you notice as well how the Lord calls himself a witness? Something Once again, which the godless are apt to forget, that all along, in all the sins that we commit, he is noticing. He's in heaven taking note. He is a witness to all that we do. And through his prophets, he is warning us that he will appear as a visible witness to testify against all the sins he has observed. And uh, the thought here being, if the Lord should appear as a witness, just think. If he should witness against us and testify against us for our sins, who then is left to advocate? It is a solemn and a sobering message. But how few take heed. Do we think somehow along the way that the Lord will change his mind? Verse 6. It seems many do. But listen again. He is the Lord and he changes not. What he says he will surely do. 
And he will never make peace with sinners. Except by the blood of his own dear son. Accompanied with the tears of repentance. Which is why John and why Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom. With a message of faith and repentance. Look and see what God is doing. Repent and believe. For the kingdom of God is at hand. But still it is true, God says, at the end of verse 6, these sons of Jacob were not consumed. Still, in other words, there was a remnant, and there always is a remnant, even today among the Jews. They are not consumed. They are not consumed in the days of Malachi. They are not consumed in the days of Jesus. And they are not consumed even today. There is ever a remnant of the sons of Jacob. And we, together, as Gentiles now, those who have been grafted in, now look in hope for the future and grafting of Israel back into the tree we call the church. Yes, he remembers all his promises, and he has not forgotten the sons of Jacob. Now, I'm referring to Romans chapter 11. But look at the same time at the other side of the fire, the second aspect. What his coming would mean for the godly. The fire that burns also purifies. And yet for them, they were not living in days in which religion was flourishing. They were living lamentable uh, in their own hearts in days where religion was declining. Days of declension, not days of revival. But the Lord is saying that the very declension that Israel was subject to, and that was a lamentation to the godly souls would be, re- would be remedied by the Lord himself. And there was the hope that he set in the hearts of his true sons. He would not only burn up the chaff of the false sons, casting them out of the church. But he would purify those godly souls who mourned over their own sins and of the sins of Israel. How sad it is to the godly when the church is in a state of decline and the worship is profaned by godless souls and even godless ministers. But look here, God says, when I come, I will remedy this. I will be the healer of my people and I will be the healer of my church. I will sit over my church for judgment and for purity, casting out false sons, purifying true sons. I will cleanse out the dross of sin, refining my church after a manner which is pleasing to me. And so here he points In Malachi chapter 3 to the establishment of the church in the new covenant. Which includes once more the rejection of the godless priests over Israel. Who were condemned in Malachi in Jesus' day. But also the establishment of true religion for godly souls. And so again this fire which burns also purifies and makes better. And the effect would be that the worship of the new covenant will exceed that of the old in purity and holiness. The worship that I am bringing will be better. It will be purer. And you can understand how that filled, again, the godly souls with hope in those days, seeing the church in such a sad state of decline. And as he is said to sit, so we see that this work abides. It isn't, even though it is a sudden work, it is not a work that quickly ends. No. It is a work that once he takes up, he doesn't give up. 
The very imagery of sitting makes us think of his present enthronement, now sitting and ruling over his church. And this work, as Peter and James and others in the New Testament tell us, of purifying his church by trials, by fiery trials, is a continual work. And yes, it is the Lord who brings them into our lives. And so you ought not to complain under them. And you ought to recognize what he's doing. His coming begins a work of purifying the church and purifying her worship, which continues to this day. Peter says, James says, Malachi says, he sits upon his throne and he goes about this work. He's ever trying us by fire to purify in us every grace so that our worship would not fall into the same sad state as before. What is it that keeps the fire of grace burning? It is the oil of grace which pours down from heaven, from Christ. That is what the that is what keeps the church from falling into a state of decline as in the days of Malachi. Yes, he shall purify the sons of Levi, signifying Christians. And their worship, he says, shall be pleasant to the Lord. Always. Not because of anything in themselves, but because of his work in them as their great high priest. If you think of the message of Hebrews here. Christ tending to his church in the wilderness like Israel. Assisting them by his grace. Ever assisting them. Though they face many trials and temptation. And he will remedy what is amiss in their worship. And in their hearts. He will supply grace to help them in their present weakness. And strengthen their worship always. And this is let us see again. Not something which is simply tied up with his first coming. But something which is his present office. As he goes to the father to sit over the church. He does so to maintain and support her in worship, which is something you will also find in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. Yes, and he says, wherever that might occur in this world. And I mentioned this this morning in the pronouncement of discipline. He says, there I am in the midst to support and to lend my authority to ever be a source of sanctification and purity to the church. And so again, we are struck, as we have been throughout Malachi, and this is really the great theme of the book of Malachi, the connection between worship and godliness. What is it that hinders our worship? It is sin, always, which is the whole tragedy of sin. It is that it disrupts communion with God and it makes worship impossible. Peter speaks of this. He says, when you're fighting with your wife, you can't even pray. It's impossible. When you're sitting at home and you come into the church, Malachi says, you find that you can't worship. And that's the story of humanity. Sin makes us unworthy of his presence. And it also makes us, well, it makes us aware that we are unworthy of his presence. But the worst thing about it is that sin makes God not appear as a witness for us, but a witness against us. But just think, in the promise of a new covenant, what should happen if he should appear as a witness for us to justify us rather than to condemn? And if he should do that, tell me what might happen to our worship. Not only that he should justify, but if he should purify us as well. Making us clean and acceptable in his sight, delighting again in the true sons of Israel. Is it not then possible and indeed certain 
that we would ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart so that he would again delight in the praises of his people. Do you understand the hope of the new covenant and the privilege that we are now enabled to partake of that even today? Do you see how much better the present portion is? But as I close, well, my message to you is that of the prophet Malachi and John after him. It is that you might look upon the coming of the Lord in the days of John with great delight, first of all. That you might read of the fulfillment of these promises and not uh, look uh, upon them as the Jews do today with rejection or with scrutiny. But that you might find the Lord whom you're seeking and delight at his coming. And that your delight might be accompanied with repentance for his coming is that of salvation but also of judgment. And he testifies against the sins of the church. See him there as a witness against your sin, but likewise as a witness of his own pardoning mercies and cleansing power. I am the Savior of Israel. I am the Savior of my church, he says. Yes, and if he is that to you as one who purifies with the refiner's fire, well, then you won't be like those in Malachi's day, sorcerers, adulterers, exploiters, but you will be precisely, and you are, Precisely what the New Testament calls you. And that is a priesthood purified to offer spiritual sacrifices which are pleasing and acceptable to God. That is the picture of the New Testament church that you find in the New Testament. And we ought to recognize it is true even of us. The Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being more precious than gold that perish though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom you've not seen, you love, and whom, though you, you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. I wonder if you notice how much of Malachi's message seems to be on Peter's mind. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And uh, I missed one verse. I have those in my notes, but I missed one verse. And that's chapter 2, verse 5, which I've already alluded to. But let me read it just to be sure I got it right. First Peter. Let's see here. First Peter. There we are. Chapter 2, verse 
5, he says, you, all, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual household, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The thing that the prophet was looking forward to is now true of you. That's what you have to realize. That is the glory of the new covenant. And it is the thing which should delight you utterly to partake of such a worship which God says, I delight in. I do not stand as a witness against your worship. I delight in it. In all, uh, in all that is offered through Jesus Christ, my son. And I accept everything that is offered in his name from these lesser priests, the sons of Levi, Christian people. But above all, look to his coming. Yes, he has come. Yes, we are worshiping now, but look to his coming. See that the message of the prophet remains both in the days of Malachi, but even today, and we saw it in Peter. And you'll find it all through the new covenant that Jesus has both come and is coming. He's appearing. And that is the hope of Israel even today, the spiritual Israel, the true sons of Israel, uh, of, of Jacob. And so we realize, as I said earlier, that the words of the prophet Malachi remain relevant even today. Our position is basically the same. We are uh, ever told throughout all of scripture to look to his coming in judgment with eager expectation with delight, and with a spirit of repentance. And that is always the work of preaching. It is to announce as his messenger the coming of the Lord. Realize that he is coming in judgment, and that day will be terrible for the wicked. It will be unbearable. Who among the wicked can stand in the day of his appearance? Who can bear the sight of his coming? He will appear as a sudden witness against the wicked and they shall be burned up with unquenchable fire, the fires of hell. But the godly, and John says this, and Peter says this, and Jesus says this, the godly will be gathered into his barn. Those who are looking in hope and joyous expectation for his appearance, even his coming in judgment, they look forward to that with eager expectation. He gathers them and keeps them safe forevermore. And I ask you in closing, do you cherish such a hope in your heart? Do you share, even in this, the burden of the prophet? Are you looking with longing for his coming? Amen. And let us uh, stand together now as we close out our worship and sing together as a hymn of response. Hymn number 418.